question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the city for Tuesday, March 20th. I'm your host, Andy Longhurst, and today on the show we'll be discussing urban water issues as we mark International Water Day this week on March 22nd. And also on the show, uh, we'll be hearing from Sean Antrim in a discussion I had with him um, about the interim report issued by the Mayor's Task Force on Housing. And uh, we'll also be providing coverage on what residents and Vancouver, the Vancouver Renters Union is calling a renovation in Mount Pleasant. That's all on the show, so stay with us. This is The City on CITR 101.9 FM, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Um, just a quick update on a story that we covered uh, last week. The Musqueam band members that were protesting a development on an important burial and village site in Marple have been successful in forcing a temporary halt to development for three weeks for all parties to meet and come to an agreement of how to move forward. Um, and, and certainly this issue is not over yet, um, but the mobilization of Musqueam members last week to protect the site did force the developer to temporarily um, uh, back down on immediately beginning the construction. So this is a, an issue we'll continue to watch in coming weeks, um, but something I thought uh, would be interesting to pr provide an update on. And... Uh, you can, uh, you're listening to, CIT, to, to CITR on 101.9 FM, um, streaming live at citr.ca, cable, um, Shaw Cable um, 88.5. And uh, you can also find information about the show and the podcast at thecityfm.wordpress.com. Um, and before we get into our, um, the majority of the, the show today on uh, urban water issues, and I have two wonderful guests uh, in studio to be uh, discussing this um, with me, um, we're going to first uh, hear from a, resi a resident and the Vancouver Renters Union um, about uh, what they're calling a renovation in Mount Pleasant. And... Um, so this this renovation or, or what they're calling is a renovation um, is in Mount Pleasant, uh, Watson Court on East Eighth, um, and there was a rally um, and a little press gathering um, called uh, yesterday, and so I was there covering that, and I wanted to provide some coverage um, on uh, what they're saying is uh, renovations occurring as a way to evict tenants uh, from the site. 
And uh, first, we're going to hear from uh, we're going to hear from one of the residents, Sharon, and then also uh, from a number um, of people affiliated with the Vancouver Renters Union. So here's that clip. Sharon, Sharon, Sharon is addressing the question about the city councilors and their relationship to the eviction. Okay, we've talked to the city councilors, we've talked to Kenny Kwan's office, and um, we wanted them to be able to track the money that was put aside for this building. And they said that once they transferred from federal to provincial, nobody knows where it went. It's gone. We met with Carrie Jang and Jeff Meggs. How long ago? Six months ago. Yeah, we've met with them several times, and, and they've got no answers. Nobody seems to know. Sharon, it is Sharon, right? Yes, it is. So how many places have you tried to look at, and what has it been like? Well, you see, I've got a, a dog, and he's more than 20 pounds which is what a lot of apartments allow. Um, I've also got a scooter. So I've looked and looked probably physically around here. I've looked at 10 or 12 apartments. But for one reason or another, um, one, the ones I like, I have no vacancy. Number two, that my dog's too big. Number three, they've got no scooter access. So when are you expected to leave this building? April 30th at 1 p.m. What's the, what are you going to do? What's the plan? I don't know. What are you hoping for from the residential community? Well, we're not really sure. We're I mean, just we, leaving the we've held this off for, for a few years now. And we're probably at the end of our journey, but um, maybe we'll get some more time. One thing we're hoping for also is to um, you know, make, maybe negotiate with the landlord that we can move out during the reno renovation and then move back in. Mm -hmm. And our, our, the eviction dispute. our portion of the building where um, we live was all rebuilt 10 years, 11 years ago after a, a big fire. And so we personally can't see any need for all the renovations that they want to do. In our suites. In our suites. Yeah. Other parts of the building need renovation desperately. And where did the other tenants in your situation go? Do you have an idea? Maybe it could be... I'm sorry? The other tenants in your situation? You have no idea where, where they went? Or... Oh, a lot of them. A lot of, no, you were saying that a lot of them went to BC Housing, but not to disabled suites. They went to regular suites, so they're not as independent as they used to be. Yeah, BC Housing announced that they weren't going to find housing for people inside BC Housing buildings. They yeah, told that's me. for myself uh, and Lauren and Bruce. Dogs, people with dogs and. and and they told us that we could we could stay on a list for nonprofit societies. Um, Another uh, someone arrived, uh, a contractor who put who has a um, is a witness 
in the case about the renovation, so he is a contractor and he can speak to uh, why the renovations are being done in a way that is unnecessarily aggravating as being used to evict the tenants and it's not necessary. Uh, so we have uh, Terry Martin said he'd be willing to speak to that right now, right Terry? Yeah, I, I looked at the, um, these, the renovation schedule that the developer put together and um, I've renovated numerous apartments uh, along with a partner. Um, and uh, this is obviously done in a way that's the most disruptive possible to the tenants and the building. It's not necessary to renovate an entire building all at once. You can do individual suites very easily. Uh, myself working with my partner, a two-person crew, we can do an apartment inside of a month. And that includes a complete apartment, kitchen, bathroom, carpets, walls, uh, painting, everything that needs to be done in this building. Uh, it's entirely doable for the for the owner to renovate all of the suites except the occupied suites. And uh, if he uh, if the company wants to renovate the, the remaining five suites, it can be done a very short amount of time. Uh, they can be done one at a time or the last five all at once within a couple of months. So um, uh, this is clearly done in a way that's meant to evict people so that rents can be raised. It, it's, it, to me, it's very clear. Uh, the other thing is in the schedule that the uh, company has put together on the renovations in discussing uh, how they go about things. Uh, they go to the point of saying they're taking wall tiles off of bathroom walls with sledgehammers and that's dangerous and you don't do that you 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 know the the methods that they that they put down on paper that they're using for renovation are are meant to be the most dangerous and disruptive there is and uh, uh methods that aren't normal in the industry so uh, this is clear to me that this is about getting rid of the remaining tenants it's not about uh the the necessary uh, things you have to do for a renovation. The other thing is, is it, there may be slight costs attached to keeping those five suites and then renovating them individually, but certainly for eight to 11 months that the developer has uh, has said will take the renovation would take the rents from five suites for 11 months would certainly offset any of those costs. So I see this clearly as a renovation. It's nothing, nothing other than that. It's unnecessary in my view. Can we do some one-on-one -on -one interviews? Are you guys able to just stick around for a little while while we talk to you one-on-one? Sure. Could I just... Um, I want to make it really clear that this has been um, affordable, low-income, wheelchair-accessible housing for 30 years. It was built for that purpose. And BC Housing took over management a um, number of years ago and since been mismanaged to the point where they decided to sell it to, for at least a million dollars less than its assessed value to a private developer who is now evicting the remaining disabled tenants who have dogs who really have nowhere else to go. These are their homes, they've lived here for decades and they shouldn't be kicked out. Renovations are just being used to push them out. Many residents have already left because they were so disruptive. And, and now the remaining tenants are fighting the evictions at the residential tenancy branch when they have very few resources to do so. It takes a lot of time and a huge toll on their already, um, already fragile health. And it's not fair to them. Why is the province doing this to them? Why is the city doing nothing but issue permits to developers? It doesn't make 
any sense. You're here. And that was a rally uh, organized in part by the Vancouver Renters Union, um, as well as uh, residents um, of uh, Watson Court. And they're calling um, actions taken by the property management company um, a rent eviction. And this is a statement from the Vancouver Renters Union on this issue. And I quote, disabled low income people have called Richard Watson Court home since it was built by the voice of the cerebral palsy in 1982. Last year, BC Housing misled tenants that the building needed to be demolished and pressured them to move out. Half of the 39 units were vacated by November 2011 when the property was sold to a private developer for a million dollars, less than its assessed value. For a million dollars, less than its assessed value, excuse me. The building is structurally sound and will not be demolished. Instead, the new landlord is using unnecessary renovations to evict the remaining tenants and double the rent. Unsafe, illegal, and unnecessarily disruptive renovation practices are being used to pressure tenants to leave. The property manager, Carrera Management, has alternately bribed and harassed the remaining tenants in cooperation with BC Housing. The tenants applied to BC Housing for subsidized homes months ago, but were told by BC Housing that the best, quote, the best possibility for the type of housing you want is in the private market. Though tenants are adamant about staying in their homes, BC Housing insists that their subsidies at 577 East 8th will expire on the date of the eviction, April 30th. And this is the response I got from Carrera Management Corporation, uh, the company that um, is now manage, managing the site um, and has, uh, is, is uh, co- uh, conducting the, the renovations. Uh, and I quote, Just for clarity, the issues the building has are not new. They have been evident for over 10 years. The previous owner, Cerebral Palsy Housing Society, informed the tenants over the past few years of such. They would not fix the issues, so the issues became worse. Most people moved out. We have only been performing re- repairs to mitigate. As for the issue of rent increase, market rents in the area are not much higher than what the existing tenants are paying. You will see this on a simple Craigslist search. The claim that rents will go up two to three times is not possible. We, may, we own many buildings and some require work from time to time, especially one of our buildings that is over 100 years old, and we have always worked around tenants. It is not our policy to, to disrupt tenants and clients unless absolutely necessary. The issue here is common sense. 37 tenants exercise as much, exercised as much, but for some reason two tenants do not, um, and this is taken verbatim. Uh, the building needs... The building needs the repair work and is not safe to live in during the process. If you have not visited the interior, I invite you to do so in order to write a fair article. We have had an independent contractor estimate the construction period to be 9 to 12 months. Hope when you read this and below, you will be able to write a fair assessment of this situation. This is not a case of the landlord randomly evicting tenants. This is a case of trying to repair a bad situation, which we did not cause, so tenants can eventually enjoy a healthy, livable home. Also worth noting, those two tenants have taken us to arbitration, which takes place on Wednesday morning. And that was a statement from Carrera um, Management Corporation. And... uh, so that, that's an issue uh, that will go to arbitration um, tomorrow, 
and uh, we we will likely be pr- providing more coverage on that issue um, in coming weeks. I'm going to go now to a conversation I had with Sean Antrim yesterday. Sean uh, is one of the, the editors at The Mainlander, um, an online uh, progressive blog uh, talking about uh, politics from a progressive perspective in the city of Vancouver. And uh, I discussed with him the interim report um, issued by the mayor's task force on housing um, that was uh, issued an, a number of weeks ago. Um, here's uh, Sean and I discussing that. So moving forward and looking back at the interim report uh, from the task force, um, something that has been mentioned is looking at uh, Fee Simple um, in BC and something that's not allowed. Um, So uh, non-strata Fee Simple row houses or townhouses. Um, And so a lot of urban designers and planners are getting very excited about this idea. What are your thoughts on that and maybe more bluntly, is is this really um, a way that it's not really addressing some of the root causes of why we have um, unaffordability, yeah. in your opinion? I don't think with the fee simple housing, I don't think what we need is more financial instruments uh, that we can use for people to speculate on or, or create as investments. This is not the problem. This is not the problem that we had in 2006 in the American economy. It was creating more derivatives, right? Um, what we need is tried and true uh, methods that work, which is subsidizing housing. Will the fee, will the fee simple housing, uh, fee simple townhouses create more density? Probably, but there's there are things that are stopping density. It, it's not like it's not as though Vancouver doesn't have a relatively free housing market right now, right? There's it's creating uh, fee simple row, row housing is not going to address. The, the the root causes at all it's it's just making smaller smaller buildings on lots so the density will increase but we we've, we've already seen that there's lots of undeveloped land that's not being developed in Vancouver right now um, there's lots of uh, single family homes that aren't being put, had have laneway houses put on them so we'll we'll see what happens with that I think it's always good to increase density in in slower ways because then you don't have uh, residents upset about their neighborhoods changing um, but I don't think this is going to and I, I, w- I would support the fee simple townhouses but I don't think it's going to solve any of our problems Any thoughts uh, moving forward how can- council is likely to respond um, to this interim report and what we're likely to see in the next week, coming weeks or coming months I don't, I don't see anything, unless uh, there's a bit of a political backlash against this report and this task force, I don't really see anything happening uh, at the council level other than uh, rubber stamping it. Because I, I've, I've said from the beginning, I think the Affordable Task Force is just a rubber stamp process itself to legitimize uh, processes that are already in the city's affordable housing strategy for the next 10 years which is more condos and the demolition of, of afford- existing affordable housing. And there's nothing in the report that says that that's not going to happen. No. Are, are we stuck in a paradigm of neoclassical economics where it's all it's supply, supply, supply? Well, there's, I, think, I think right now right now Vancouver has the characteristics, characteristics of a, a monopoly or an oligopoly. So uh, it's, I, the, there are ways to address that, which might... Uh, if, if I don't know how you would do that, and some antitrust lawsuits or something, right? And, and an actual look at the monopoly in the market structure um, in Vancouver, uh, because the, the, that's the the the, on the, the pricing levels, um, the amount of housing being constructed. Those all reflect mon- monopoly or oligopoly. And we do know that there are, are several, maybe a dozen, very large 
housing development corporations where in the 1970s there were a lot of small players, right? Those don't exist anymore. Um, so that would be one thing. If, if I was a, a free market uh, economist, then that's maybe what I would be proposing because the free market's not working uh, it, or what exists of it in Vancouver is not working because of the monopolies. You have one person marketing all of the condos, Bob Rennie, right? It, if, you, if you really wanted to address it from a neoclass, neoclassical perspective, that's what I would suggest. But I still stand by that even that is a bit... It, that sounds like that would be uh, problematic for developers. It would be tough, yeah. It would be tough. They might not like the free market. No, I think, <laughs> I think what, what we can do is let... If, like, if, if we don't want to have a crash... Um, as we've seen when people start, started recommending uh, new financial instruments in 2006, we saw what happened a couple years after that. Uh, if we want to avoid something like that happening in Vancouver, which a lot of people are predicting, then we need to create housing in the, priv- in the public sector. We need to create an alternative market for housing that is affordable so that we don't have to have everyone's house, house price drop in half to what, on a fundamental level, they're probably worth. Uh, to build, to create affordability. I think that we can create affordable housing the same way that we've always done it by building, by the government building it without profiting off of it, and then we won't have to see a, a magnificent collapse. But we'll see what happens. And maybe reevaluate tax policy at federal and provincial levels to tax the wealthiest to... Yeah, it's not, like, it's not like there's no... That's the other part of the picture. It's not like there's no money being made off of uh, this. There's so many people in, this, in Vancouver who are doing absolutely nothing and making money hand over fist. The landlords don't really do anything. As we see, they don't repair their buildings in a lot of cases. What are they spending that money on? They're putting it back. They're leveraging it 20 times, getting another mortgage and buying more housing and putting more constraint on the demand. So, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think... Uh, I, I, think, I think, as I said, I think we need to find an alternative and try to test it in true methods that we're not doing right now and they're not being recommended by the task force. Sean Antrim, always fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Despite the fact that 8 in 10 Canadians are against warrantless and costly online spying, the government remains stubborn, set to cement this scheme into law. With their huge PR budget, they've unleashed a reckless and irresponsible campaign that suggests warrantless collection of our private data is on par with a phone book. We can't let them trick Canadians. Go to www.openmedia.ca now to find out what you can do to get involved and stop this smoke and mirrors campaign the government has started. you know about bikes? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers, or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen, and then get riding. And this is The City on CITR 101.9 FM. We're broadcasting live from the University of British Columbia 
in the Student Union Building, and uh, we're now um, in the second half of our show, and um, we're recognizing International Water Day, which is uh, coming up this week on March 22nd, and uh, I have the pleasure of having two guests in studio um, to talk about water at the local level. Um, I have Joshua Welsh, who is a graduate student in the UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, and I also have Sarah Mohammed Poor, a graduate student at uh, in the UBC Civil engineering program and I want to welcome you both uh, to the show and uh, again thank you so much for coming in how are you guys doing good thank you for having us and great thanks and uh, I know this is radio and and you can't see this but we're uh, (laughs) it's it's a little interesting because we're not looking at each other in this conversation because we're in um, Studio B, which we don't usually broadcast from, so it's a. It might be a, at times seem a kind of awkward because I'm looking the other direction, and uh, so we're not actually making any eye contact right now. But I might try to address this. Um, but that said, I want to. And we're sharing a mic. Yeah, and you're sharing a mic. Um, so it's a. We we apologize if we uh, have some awkward uh, gaps in um, in the conversation, but I want to go. Um, First to you, Sarah, um, can you uh, tell us a little bit about um, what you do and uh, the program that you're in and the research, um, uh, what issues your research focuses on or other activities um, and how this relates to uh, urban water issues? Uh, As you mentioned, I'm a graduate student in the civil engineering department. Uh, my specific program is called Pollution Control and Waste Management, uh, and they deal a lot with both uh, liquid waste and solid waste management in Vancouver. Uh, and my specific program, uh, I'm, stud- I'm focusing on water resource management. Uh, as, and as part of my master's degree, uh, I worked with a uh, project with the city of Burnaby, uh, a local consult- consulting firm, and University of British Columbia. So it was a very collaborative project, uh, and it took place in Burnaby. Uh, and it was focused in a local stream, local urban stream called Beecher Creek. Um, The ultimate goal of the project was to implement some on-site best management practices, uh, and specifically water barrels, rain barrels in this case, uh, and to see if we could use these rain barrels uh, to improve habitat for fish and other aquatic organisms in this Beecher Creek stream. Um, the way the project came about was my supervisor has actually been a streamkeeper for Beecher Creek for the last 15 years, uh, and he got involved because his son used to be a scout that did stream cleaning around the stream. Uh, so him through, through UBC and his graduate student has done multiple projects on the stream, uh, and it was kind of an ideal sitting to try out this rain barrel project. Uh, and the idea was that uh, we could, in the houses that neighbored the stream, we could install some rain barrels that would capture some of the Rainwater that that normally falls on the roof goes through a storm sewer system and ends up in the stream. So we would intercept that water that would fall, go into the stream by catching it in the rain barrels uh, and returning it to the lawns and to the ground around the stream area, and reducing by that reducing the load in the stream. Uh, the, the second goal of the project was uh, was um, engaging the citizens that live in that neighborhood, uh, seeing the what, what is the willingness to participate in a in a green 
initiative and a green incentive. Uh, and after assessing that kind of initial willingness, trying to see what kind of programs we could implement to get them on board and see if we could change their mind uh, about being part of this project. Just so folks have yeah. a sense of um, where this is, can yeah. you um, give people a general sense of geographically where this is in the city? Uh, if people are familiar with Burnaby, it's very close to Brentwood Mall uh, and the Holdem Skytrain Station. Uh, the stream kind of runs from Burnaby North, the hills in Burnaby North, down to Lowheat Highway, uh, and eventually it leads to Steel Creek. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And um, you touched on uh, reducing sediment load. Why? Why is that an objective? Uh, so, uh, actually, specifically, we're trying to reduce flows and oh, okay. water okay. loads on the stream. Um, and the reason is that at the moment there is a. There are, few, there, there are few fish trying to live in the stream. Uh, there is some resident cutthroat trout uh, and some coho salmon that are trying to spawn in the stream. Uh, and we're trying to reduce the stress on the fish habitat in the stream. Uh, when it rains, if you can imagine right now, all the water from the roofs and the pavements uh, is, goes directly into pipes, directly ends up in the stream. And it's, I feel like if you're a fish living in the stream, you would be experiencing flooding all the time, every time it rains. And that washes away fish food and affects uh, places where fish can hide and live. So this is a pilot project. We're seeing if the rain barrels can have an effect on the stream. And if they show to have an effect, we can. this can be part of a bigger solution of uh, on-site water retention uh, where so it could hopefully it could turn into a bylaw where we would be doing this in more cities across uh, the lower in, in more cities across the lower mainland uh, and capturing more rainwater so that it, it improves kind of the overall fish habitat in the lower mainland. And what's the timeline on this? Um, I've been working on the project. So as, as I said, my supervisor has been working on the creek for the last 15 years. I've been working on it for the last two years, and hopefully I will have some results soon to share with the city of Burnaby and the Burnaby Council. Great. Now uh, let's go to Joshua, and I'm going to let him uh, adjust the mic and uh, get comfortable. Okay, and we're, we're good to go. So same, same question to you, uh, Joshua. What, what does your research focus on, and uh, how is this uh, part of uh, larger issues with um, uh, urban water? Good question. I, my research will actually begin this summer. I just had my uh, thesis proposal accepted. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm forming my committee currently. Um, the work I've done thus far um, deals with looking at uh, rainwater harvesting, uh, in particular, uh, from both the uh, municip municipal level as well as the grassroots level, and how to bring those two things together. Um, I could talk about some programs I've been involved with up until now, and then I could get it briefly into my research. That would, th yeah, that'd be great for sure. Last summer, I was brought on board as one of the ten Greenest City Scholars. Basically, UBC has a partnership with the city to um, allow internships to happen between graduate and PhD students in the city to help work on the uh, 10 Greenest City goals. I was tasked with working on goal number eight, which is clean water. Uh, that goal has two components, one to have the cleanest drinking water in the world, which pretty much was taken care of because of where we get our water um, <laughs> already. Uh, but the other component, which is water conservation, um, is a bit challenging in this in this town because of the amount of rainfall we get. Um, the city wants to cut conserv or wants to cut consumption by 33%. Um, right now, we're about 12% off target, and we're trying to figure out ways to 
to reach the the third the full thirty three percent by by use um, what's the breakdown of water consumption um, in the city of Vancouver by use in terms of who uses it? yeah users fifty six percent actually is accountable by uh, residences alone okay. you could break that almost in half between private and, and or a single family and then multifamily residences so it's pretty great uh, the majority of it is used by homes okay. And um, so going back to the, the, um, the aspect of conservation, um, what are some of the ways that the city is trying to address um, and achieve, you said 12, at this point in time, 12% uh, behind where we should be? Is that we, correct? Yeah, yeah. working on a, the 12% gap. Yeah. <laughs> Closing the gap is what we've called it. Um, and how are, how are you addressing that? Um, the other solutions, the 21%, um, are pretty straightforward engineered solutions, such as uh, having the city invest in more efficient water fixtures and having new residences uh, implement them. Um, the city recently enacted a water sprinkling ordinance to take place each summer to cut down on sprinkling of lawns. Actually, during summertime, 30 per- 30% of water consumption goes to sprinkling of lawns. Um, and so there are a number of those solutions that have happened. Uh, water metering has taken place with all new residences in the city, with all new building construction. Uh, water meters will have to go in. But the distinction is they have to go in, but the region doesn't do water metering. They don't regulate it. Right. Right. And you're not, you're not billed based upon your usage but they are required now in all new construction to include water meters. Mm-hmm. So is this indicative that we might eventually see um, billing based on usage in the future? Or, yeah. It's, it's possible. <laughs> I think that's the direction that the city is moving in, albeit a bit, a bit slowly. Uh, Vancouver is quite behind the rest of North America in terms of water metering. But that might have a lot to do with the cost of water. I believe it's uh, 80 cents per 1,000 liters. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, if you think of what a, a liter of bottled water, which oftentimes is of lesser quality than we, what we get from the North Shore. I'm, I'm still shocked, though. I mean, uh, cities um, in the Pacific Northwest, Vancouver, I, I know because I, I grew up there. Um, the Portland area, you have metering. Um, and there's a lot of rain in Portland. <laughs> so I'm just trying to figure out what's... Is there a historical context to why metering um, has never been part of um, uh, water management? That's a good question. Yeah, I'm not I quite sure. I, I've always wondered. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think part of the challenge really is just is retelling the story of water in this town. I know that the approaches that Seattle and Portland has more or less sister cities have taken is to look more at uh, the effects upon water quality than consumption. It's really hard to tackle consumption when people see water all around us. Um, but if you start to look at issues of combined sewage overflows uh, into natural waterways affecting salmon populations um, and the altering of certain amenities that we take for granted, um, then people start to actually think a little bit differently about how they use water. And so uh, the that might actually be a better approach for the city if if we want to start 
uh, changing the narrative and actually getting people to think about these things. And maybe this is, um, I'll stick with you, Josh, because you're uh, at the microphone right now. Um, maybe is this is this the number one or some of the, one of the top challenges that you see uh, the city facing in, in terms of dealing with uh, water management at the local scale um, is conservation, or do you see? I mean, like you said, we have we have the quality of our water is extraordinary. Um, are there other issues in addition to uh, reducing uh, consumption um, that that we should be thinking about? And that has been part of your research or your work. Mm-hmm. The work, yes, we work at last summer identified that consumption. The 12% remaining gap uh, for consumption has to come from behavior change. And so that's the, the toughest uh, way of tackling conservation. And so the city's looking at a number of ways to do that. Um, I believe another issue uh, that is quite large is this issue of combined sewage overflow. The city <laughs> is working um, to separate their storm sewers from their uh, regular sewage pipes. Um, what would the proper name for the <laughs> storm sewers? The storm sewers, yeah. So the problem, though, is that uh, still about 80% are combined. And so when we have major storm events, uh, sewage often gets dumped into False Creek, for instance. And I want to go to you now, Sarah. Um, for you, what are um, what are the most significant uh, challenges that we face uh, with our, our, urban water, our urban water management? Um, I think what the, one of the biggest challenges that we're not facing yet uh, and then we might, we will face in the future if we don't change how we do things is we're going to have to look for new sources of water with the projected growth that we have and with the, with the behaviors and things that we're used to. If we don't change things, we're going to have to look for new sources of water. Uh, and that's going to bring, that's going to have a huge cost implications for taxpayers in the lower mainland. Um, what uh, a lot of people might not realize that our our infrastructure in the city is aging. Our storm sewers, our sewage lines, um, our water pipes, they're all aging and they're all constantly under reconstruction and they cost uh, taxpayers, depending on what scale you're looking at, from millions to billions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't, if we don't, if we don't change the system, as, the, as these systems are aging, we're going to have to replace them. But if we manage to re- change our behavior so we're not so reliant on these systems anymore, uh, then we might be able to save ourselves some money and prevent that uh, inevitable trying to look for a new water source. So we live in a city that uh, that has a lot of rainwater. We could look into rainwater harvesting systems and trying to use that water that's falling into Vancouver. Um, but that, as Josh mentions, comes with a lot of behavior change that needs to happen on the part of people who live in Vancouver that would they would need to accept a different way of getting water, getting water and different way of using their their home space, uh, and that also comes with uh, governance and finance financing issues also. Uh, yeah. So I, th- there's a building on campus, uh, the SIRS building, the yeah. Center for. Uh, is it integrated or inter? It's integrated uh, okay. research on sustainability, um, C I R S SIRS, um, and it I think has achieved lead platinum, um, or that's mm-hmm. what it was built for evaluation. They're hoping to get it, yeah. they're hoping to, to uh, receive that, um, and there's a lot of people have made a big to do about it, but it's certainly not cheap to do a lot of this um, rainwater harvesting, gray water. Um, 
and just r- realistically, um, are, is it possible to do this on a scale for all new development? And additionally, um, is it possible to look at existing structures and, and retrofit them accordingly? Uh, yeah, so depends on there's some there's some changes uh, that make sense and actually could happen fairly low costly. So from a perspective of someone who's a homeowner, you could change your lawn. I mean, it it has some cost, but really putting taking that like fake lawn off and putting real lawn in your house uh, would be fairly low cost. Uh, or getting a rain barrel from from a city right now, you can get it at around fifty seventy dollars, I believe, for a rain barrel. So there's little things that homeowners could do that wouldn't be very high cost. Uh, that said, the incentive to do it is very low for homeowners. They they don't have any incentive to do it uh, to change. A home's entire infrastructure, so it's harvesting rainwater. Yes, that will be expensive, but I think we would have to look at the bigger picture of um, keeping, uh, keep doing things the old ways. That that's not going to be sustainable. That's going to cost us money, or shifting to doing things a new way will cost us money initially. But in the long term, it's going to save us a lot of money. Uh, there's people like the David Suzuki Foundation and the Polis Project out of Victoria that have done a lot of research into. Uh, different financing structures and different incentive systems that you could kind of shift the cost um, and giving people incentives to start taking action. Something um, moving more to uh, city infrastructure, something that um, I I notice a lot in Portland and now I see it more increasingly in Vancouver, but um, you see ways to to reduce um, uh, peak flow into the storm sewers Mm -hmm. um, and they're achieving that through um, better landscape architecture. So yeah. you have uh, curbs that are cut away and you have uh, the storm sewers that are um, behind. Um, or it allows the, the, the water and the um, rainwater to actually be um, to infiltrate the soil rather than going directly to the storm sewer. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, like, on a scale, um, how, on what scale can we do this across the city? And is it, if we look at, through a wider sustainability lens, is it really is it practical to sometimes, well, even maybe tear up existing uh, infrastructure to put this in, so we maybe achieve one goal, but maybe we take away from another sustainability goal of reducing the amount of concrete or, or um, other materials that we're laying <laughs> in the city. Like, how do we kind of negotiate all of these trade offs? Um, well. Right now, what what is happening, I think, across Lower Mainland is all municipalities are coming up with integrated watershed management plans that is supposed to be looking into the kind of initiatives that you mentioned. So as new houses are built or houses are renovated, we are kind of implementing these changes as we go along. Um, I, I think there's a lot we can do before we start ripping up existing infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should... Uh, and kind of like the, the idea behind it being that uh, our natural ecosystems, if you leave them intact, they have an in, um, incredible ability to, to take water and treat it, to take storm water and infiltrate it. So we want to leave our natural infrastructure in place, not infrastructure, natural land in place as much as possible. And if we can focus on making sure that stays intact, I think we've gone a long way even before we're ripping up concrete. And yeah. Uh, maybe send that over that same question over to you, Josh. Currently, Vancouver has one street um, that is actually a, a really wonderful example of what Vancouver calls uh, sustainable streets. Portland calls it green streets. 
Um, there's another number of different names for it. Basically, it's open drainage, as you had mentioned. <laughs> um, you allow plant matter and soils to take on cleaning and slowing of, of stormwater flows. Um, what's so wonderful about Crown Street is that it actually has helped to um, sustain Musgreen Creek, which is the single remaining uh, salmon-bearing mm-hmm. creek left in Vancouver proper. And so it's a really wonderful example to show how how infrastructure and natural systems can work in concert um, to help sustain a particular amenity that we enjoy. Going on, going, continuing on that same thought, um, how significant are um, the urban streams that we have within the region um, to the larger um, uh, ecosystem um, and this bioregion? That's a very big question. <laughs> um, there are a number of things I could respond to. Yeah. Um, there has been a lot of studies that recently show that uh, when you actually raise the level of biodiversity within an ecosystem, you uh, have an equal raise in human health. Um, uh, so nature does have particular restorative effects upon upon humans, and, and that's especially important within cities where we're overwhelmed with all sorts of stressors, anything from noise to pollution to uh, just the number of, of people in traffic and such. Um, but the idea of daylighting streams, is this what you're referring to? Yeah, I think um, certainly daylighting streams and and. Um, being very wary of the the runoff um, and and uh, pollutants that are entering um, stream systems, regardless of whether they have been daylighted or um, or not. I, I just think you know we have we have a lot of cars and there's a lot of oil that makes its mm-hmm. way into our water systems, um, and I think to some extent. Um, how does how does daylighting play into all of this um, as as a method of addressing um, habitat restoration and the urban the urban environment? Well, to give our listeners somewhat of an idea of where the water goes, it doesn't disappear. If you actually put your ear to some of the uh, storm drain or the uh, manhole covers um, on any of our streets, you'll you'll often hear rushing water, and that basically is a lot of that is, m- most of our streams in Vancouver have been buried and put into culverts. Right. Um, and so there there are a lot of flows that still happen. However, um, there is nothing to slow them down, and there's nothing to uh, filter out some of these pollutants before they reach our major water bodies. And so when you create uh, open drainage, you provide a lot of opportunities for that to happen. But you also provide opportunities for ecosystems to reestablish themselves and to create a higher level of biodiversity, which I was uh, touching upon earlier. And we're just about out of time. This is CITR 101.9 FM broadcasting from the Vancouver campus of the University of British Columbia. And this is The City, um, an hour dedicated to critical discussions of urban issues. And you can find information about the show at at thecityfm.wordpress.com. And you can listen to the show 
on 101.9 FM on your FM dial, CITR.ca streaming, and also as a podcast, and that podcast can be found shortly after the live broadcast um, on CITR.ca or the cityfm.wordpress.com. And just to wrap up, um, I have Josh, um, a, a current graduate student in the UBC School of Architecture and Landscape Architecture, and Sarah Mohammed Poor. She is um, a graduate student at UBC Civil Engineering. And uh, as we wrap up, I want to ask you each um, one thing that we can work on as a city or as a region to address uh, water um, issues and, and challenges that we face um, and, and uh, also something that you find inspiring about what we're doing and uh, giving us an indicator that uh, we can certainly affect change. So um, start off maybe Sarah with you and then go to Josh. Uh, on the note of, uh, I think, what we can do uh, as a region, as a city, I feel like um, there's a lot of initiatives that are happening in the lower mainland uh, or at the at the province of British Columbia, and a lot of them are a little bit disjointed at the moment, uh, but maybe eventually with time they will become more streamlined. But for the meantime, as citizens, I think we can all take it upon ourselves to use less water, uh, to get to our local stream, to make changes to our to our backyard. Um, my personal challenge this summer is to turn to rip up the lawn in my parents' backyard and turn it into a wild garden that can uh, popularize itself. Um, as far as inspiration, I think working with the working with the city of Burnaby, uh, I found inspiration even within within the staff and intentions uh, within the city. I feel like there's a lot of people in the lower mainland that do care about. Uh, these issues and there's a lot of people working voluntarily with the city of Vancouver uh, on the Greener City Action Goals. Um, so I think we just need to keep it up and remember that it's a long-term process and it's an iterative process. One lesson that I've sort of had hit over my head a number of times is that there really aren't any silver bullets in the fight to become more sustainable, um, for humans to have a more sustainable existence. Um, but what is wonderful for those of us who live here in Vancouver is that we do have uh, a city who wants to work towards sustainability, and they actually want and need to hear from everyday citizens. I had the luxury of working with the city last summer doing research for them around water conservation. Um, the term after that, I was part of a collaborative of uh, the six post-secondary uh, schools in Vancouver with the city to continue to work on the Greenest City goals, but more from a community level. And what was glaringly clear was that there are so many people out there that also want to work towards this, and that if we start talking a bit more to the city, and if there are more methods for the city to actually hear the voices of all of us who are concerned, um, some of these challenges could be met and uh, incrementally um, approached. Okay. So I, I, th I think we each have a hand in this. Great. Well, I want to thank you both uh, so much for coming in and uh, being part of this discussion. Um, and uh, I am sure we'll cross paths uh, in the near future. So thank you so much. Um, and it's now time for Flex Your Head. Um, we're going to go to a quick PSA and uh, stay tuned for Flex Your Head at 6 p.m. This is CITR 101.9 FM. Any UBC student knows that the year begins optimistically. In your arms tonight. But by the end of it, you're ready for a little... <laughs> 
Any smart UBC student will therefore know that it's best to get your tickets early to the annual AMS Block Party. Featuring Mother Mother, Mastercraft, DJ Headspin, The Boom Booms, and more, Thursday, April 5th on the McKinnis Field, your AMS brings you the fifth year of music, partying, and hopefully some sunshine. Early bird tickets available at the Outpost until March 9th, and general tickets available thereafter. For more info, search for the AMS Block Party on Facebook. The fifth annual AMS Block Party is proudly sponsored by CITR. T-shirt time. It's T-shirt time. Everybody. 